Welcome to this special launch day episode of Talking Sock. In part one of this two-episode interview, I am joined by a true Australian treasure. That's really how I started working with the shadow puppets. World-renowned shadow puppeteer Richard Bradshaw. In this episode, we look at Richard's time spent with Jim Henson and Carol Spinney, as well as his career as artistic director of the Marionette Theatre of Australia. He had extraordinary energy. Join Richard and I now, here on Talking Sock. So Richard, welcome and thank you. We are so excited to have you here on Talking Sock. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. I need to ask you the question I ask all my guests, and that first question is, why puppets? Well, it's uh, interest in theatre, really. Um, wanting to act, particularly in, uh, when I was at school and primary school. And with puppets, one can act the whole show by oneself. And I suppose that's why I started doing some puppets even before I went to Clavelli Puppet Theatre. I would have... Probably, at the time that I joined Clavelli Papa Theatre, preferred to have joined a, a drama group. I don't regret <laughs> having joined uh, the Clavelli Papa Theatre because it's enabled me to do my own shows my own way. Um, so I've enjoyed doing doing the puppet thing, but still did quite a lot of acting when I was at university and after that when I was teaching. Tell us about the Clavelli Puppet Theatre um, as sort of, was it the origin of your puppet um, sort of world or was there a moment before Clavelli that you knew that puppetry was your thing? It would have been really nurtured at Clavelli. What happened was that uh, I went to a what was called an opportunity class in uh, in Kensington uh, Public School. There was a, a guy there who was a year ahead of me, Arthur Cantrell. We became quite good friends and Arthur went to Sydney High a year ahead of me and he had started going to Clavelli Puppet Theatre and it was a suggestion from him that I might go along there. Now, it coincided with uh, a visit of the Hogarth Puppets from England uh, with Jam Bussell and, and his wife Anne and their daughter Sally. A month or so after I'd joined Clavelli, they were in Australia. I didn't meet them, but I went to see a show that they did at the huge Empire Theatre that used to be near Railway Square. Mm. And uh, it seated about 2,500. It was arranged, the uh, show was organised by Joan and Betty Rayner of the Australian, the Australian Children's Theatre. And they had said to Jan and Anne, we'd only sell 700 seats, but a huge number of people turned up. Oh! And I was one of the last, so I was in the very back row of the theatre looking at these tiny puppets in the distance. So I did see a sort of show, but uh, I later found out from Jan that they were very unhappy about the size of that audience. Oh, dear. <laughs> wow. In, in the Clavelli Puppet Theatre, how many years were you there for? What was, what was the sort of time frame? And what was it like? What what was it like to have a, a puppet theatre, you know, in Eastern Sydney? Well, it, it was an interesting thing. It, it was an old tin hut, an army hut, mm. corrugated iron, which got very hot in the summer months. So we only played there in the cooler months. So it usually began after Easter. It did a show every Saturday afternoon. There'd be four or five little glove puppet plays, which were different from week to week, followed by a marionette show, which usually ran for three weeks or so. And then there'd be a circus, on a marionette circus once a month. 
This was all organised by Edith Murray. The Clavelli Papa Theatre was part of the Children's Library and Crafts Movement, which later became the Creative Leisure Movement. It had been started by two sisters, uh, Mary Matheson and Elsie Rivette. There were other puppet theatres. It wasn't just Clavelli. Edith also had a puppet theatre at Bradfield Park, which was a... a, It's now East Linfield, but it was a migrant camp at the time, mainly for British migrants. Wow. Uh, And there was another one... Well, it it was just a puppet theatre, a glove puppet theatre, I think, at Philip Park, which is near St Mary's Cathedral. There was a centre there, a, a library, a children's creative leisure movement centre. And at Erskineville, there were actually two puppet theatres, one which was already there when I joined Clavelli, and then there was another building where they built a new theatre that could be used for glove puppets and marionettes. That was in uh, Prospect Street... Uh, Erskineville. So there were two of these centres in Erskineville, which was then a rather depressed area. It's very different now. Yes, very different now. You just mentioned sort of five or six puppet theatres that all exist within a very small area of Sydney. And as a young person who, you know, is desperately trying to access more puppetry in Australia, the idea that there is, there was so many puppet theatres in Sydney kind of astounds me. I'm really interested to know what happened to all these little theatres and what do you think changed in Australian culture that let puppetry theatres sort of go? I think probably a very big change was television, which Ah. which was 1956, and we're talking about the years just before that. The Puppetry Guild of New South Wales, which started just after Clavelli Puppet Theatre began, had a large number of people, many of them school teachers, and so you you could get as many as 100 at at an event if, if there were visiting puppeteers. It was also a very good time to be starting off in puppetry in 1953, the the year after I joined Clavelli. Two American puppeteers came, Walton and O'Rourke, who were quite brilliant. Ronnie Burkett is very jealous of me because I saw these perform, and there doesn't seem to be much video of their work. They made puppets for a film called Lily with Leslie Caron, based on Love of Seven dolls and these were glove puppets brilliantly animated glove puppets but that wasn't what Walton O'Rourke specialised in they specialised in marionettes there was one puppet which really bowled me over and I still remember it as a wonderful figure Madame Birmingham Bowsbottom <laughs> what a great name and she came into the theatre it was open stage, so you saw the puppeteers, and she eyed the audience through her lawnettes and waved at various people and then sat down and ordered a drink from the other puppeteer who acted as a waiter. And the first drink she got, she sipped through a straw and spat out. You actually saw the spit go across the stage and said, what is this stuff, formaldehyde? I came here to be pickled, not embalmed. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. And then finally she got so pissed, really, <laughs> that she had to be carried off the stage by the seat of... by her seat. <laughs> and as she was carried off, she sang, I wish all the men were like bulls in the pasture and I was the cow that made them go faster. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I was 15 and delighted by this. <laughs> and they... Re- did a return season, and so I saw them again. But they they came to a puppetry guild meeting. They were wonderful characters. Their, their puppet show still stands out for me as one of the brilliant marionette shows. 
Unreal. And is this sort of the foundation of all these different puppet theatres and things that you saw as a member of the Puppetry Guild, but also moving around those puppet theatres in Sydney? Did you actively seek out these sort of experiences? Clavelli was the only one that was really regular. And then Mm. there were occasional shows done at these other theatres. Yes. So it was just being part of the Clavelli community that uh, got me involved through Edith, really, through Edith Murray. So I want to ask, because I want to know how you and where you get your ideas from. Many of your shadow vignettes are filled with these really great gags of visual humour. And I'd love to kind of ask about your advice on comic timing with that as well. But I want to know where these ideas come from. I remember, you know, the David being sculpted by the sculptor and before David kicks him off as he's, you know, sculpting his funny bone. I remember the ostrich. I remember the hippo on the tightrope from the early play school days. So <laughs> these ideas of what shadow puppetry is and can be for me are very much like founded in what you did. I want to know where those ideas came from. I think we should go back to how I started doing these funny things because when I started with shadow puppets, we were strongly influenced by a production that the Bustles had brought, the Hogarth Puppets, when they came to Australia. I didn't see it, but it was using puppets by Lottie Reiniger, who made all those wonderful stop-action films using silhouettes. And she, in fact, she made the first full-length animated film uh, in 1923 to 26, uh, Prince Ahmed, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And uh, so these were quite exquisite figures and they did an Oscar Wilde story, The uh, Happy Prince. Now, as I said, I didn't see that. I did eventually see it, from, but from behind. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was one of the adults that came to Clavelli Puppet Theatre, Isabel Ferguson, decided to do another Oscar Wilde story using shadow puppets and that was The Nightingale and the Rose. And Arthur Cantrell, my school friend, made most of the puppets, and I sort of did technical things for it and helped manipulate it. And so at the time we thought shadow puppets are for serious, poetic sort of plays. And the first play I did with shadow puppets was while I was teaching. I was living in a boarding school at, at Cranbrook School in Sydney and couldn't make glove puppets or marionettes because I, I'm a messy person and, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't the place to make a mess. But I could cut out bits of cardboard and so that's really how I started working with the shadow puppets, which I eventually found was my metier. <laughs> but yes. uh, uh, what I did was Orpheus in the Underworld and I got some of the kids to help me and I did the, uh, a show for the Puppetry Guild at Erskineville. It wasn't wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think I would have necessarily got on with Shadow Puppets, but Edith was giving a talk at Skegg's Girls' School in Darlinghurst about different kinds of puppets, and she didn't have a Shadow Puppet, and so she asked me to make one. And I made an old man that tapped at a rock, and the rock turned into a monster. And I performed this for her when she was giving a talk, and there was a mighty laugh from the the girls in the audience. And I thought, oh, that's the way to go with Shadow Puppets. So that was the beginning of of, uh, my doing humorous things with puppets and I haven't done many serious things with them since. You say, where do I get the ideas? Often it's beginning with a simple idea. For instance, with a camel, it's the idea of the hump falling through and then building up round that. And sometimes... It'll develop into a longer item. Sometimes it'll be very short. So the 
the statue, it's the thinker instead, do not know the statue kicking away the sculptor last, what, 20 seconds? <laughs> yeah. um, and other things will last much longer. The story of the ostrich on the tightrope and the hippo and the mouse is interesting. In fact, they were two separate items. There was the ostrich on the tightrope and it was the ostrich that came down and brought collapsed the tightrope yes. originally. And then there was the hippo and the mouse on the seesaw. And John Fox from the ABC, who wanted to do this for play school, came and suggested, can't you combine these? And so I, I thought, let's do three parts with the three animals. And so we introduced the slide, that was the, yes. a bit new, and then did the use the three animals on each. So it was the hippo that uh, ends up collapsing everything in that one. Which is the gag in threes, effectively, you know, yeah, that beautiful rule of... Three is a wonderful number, yes. Of comedy, yeah. Yes. And in timing, when you say that timing three is very important, you do things once, twice, and the third thing is the, the novel one. Yes. What other advice would you give to puppeteers or, or theatre makers on comic timing? How have you developed your comic timing? Listening to the audience. Uh, the, the, one, the nice thing about doing things that get a laugh is that you can measure how successful you are, you, especially if you're behind a screen, as I am, and can't see the audience. So the only feeling I get from them, I, I don't believe in mental telepathy, is the sounds they're making. Silence is very good, <laughs> but uh, when you're doing something funny, laughter is, is good. And so for me, the, the best time in, in learning the craft was when I was doing the school shows for Joan and Betty Rayner in 1969-70 uh, because I was playing to, I think, seven audiences a week on average and trying to get the laugh right, trying to get the time right. And those two years were very important for me. I, I remember when I started being, of course, very nervous uh, taking the show out. It was in Gippsland. And it was about the third week that I suddenly felt on top of the audience and felt that I was controlling them and, and getting the laughter I wanted from them as if, as if I'm working on them. Now, even today, that doesn't always work. And I remember when I was touring in Spain with Geordie, who was a driver, we... I had to write French for him and he answered my spoken French because we had no common language otherwise. There were a couple of times when the show just worked very well for me and he would say at the end, Mr Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't always work. And you're working all the time to try to get it right. So there's just this a sense of, of just practice and practice and practice until you've, you find that moment where you're in your control of it. And I love the the when you say, you know, hearing the audience and listening to the audience's silence, but there is not telepathy met, but there is an energy that the live audience brings that you share with the audience oh, yes. in the theatre. And particularly for you being behind that screen and being so invisible to them, how do you share that energy with your audience and, and, and how have you experienced it over time? Has it changed from the early days to now? I don't think it's changed at all that much. It, it's very... It's, sometimes I imagine the audience as being one large person <laughs> sitting there. As, as I say, I, I am working with the audience. I'm part of the audience, you know, in a way. 
I'm sharing their experience because I am seeing the show that they're seeing. But uh, one of the nice things about shadow puppets, it's not the case with the other forms of puppets. I'm seeing pretty much what they're seeing, but I'm seeing the sticks and rods as well. Yes. Um, so that's that's rather nice that uh, we're sharing the same visual. Thing. Yeah, it's a lovely thought of sharing something as opposed to putting something in front of an audience just to beg for their applause, I guess. You were featured on The Muppet Show in Season 1 and I believe there is a very special frog-related gift <laughs> to remind you of that moment. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, I'll give you the full story there. Jim Henson had first seen my show uh, at the Unima Festival in Charleville in 1972, which became a very important festival because after that, Charleville became the headquarters, charleville Mézières in France became the headquarters of Unima and it hadn't been until then. But that's where I met Jim and he liked the show and uh, I have a letter there which you can look at later, long letter that I got. It came out of the blue from him and said how nice it was to, to meet and see a, a shadow puppet show that worked or words of that effect. Wow. And he had suggested that I might come across to New York and they were working on a, a stage show with the Muppets and wondered whether I might help him with shadows. In fact, I don't think I could have done a very good job for the illustrations, the wonderful illustrations that he sent, but they were not black silhouettes, they were coloured. Yes. And, and that would have been a problem for me, animating them. But anyway, the, the show didn't happen. And then he heard that I was going to the festival in Moscow four years later in 76 and said, we're starting a little show, we call it the, uh, the series, we're calling it The Muppet Show. We think it might be successful. <laughs> <Something like that. laughs> Just maybe. Um, and we're filming it in England. That's because he couldn't get support in the States. Really? Yes. None of, the, none of the networks would take it up. He wanted a prime time slot. They, they didn't want it. Uh, so it was Lord Grade, Lou Grade in London that put up the money from ITV. It was recorded in London and Jim said, can you come by London you know, after Moscow? And so that's uh, what happened. And that the, they don't, only finished three shows at that time, the first three shows, and uh, the guest star would be flown over. I didn't meet a guest star. But I was on the set while they were recording, so it was a wonderfully happy set, very funny. Lots of things went wrong when they were recording. They were, of course, really funny bits that the audience didn't see. And at the end of the recording, Jim gave me a little silver Kermit, which I can't show you because I've taken it to Sydney because we were worried that bushfires might uh, hit us and so we took a certain number of valuables down to Sydney and that was one of the things... It was the one that he was wearing that he gave me, so I'd, it, oh, wow. it's a nice sort of contact. At the end of the Russian festival, I was to fly uh, from Moscow Airport to uh, Heathrow and the puppets were supposed to be put on the film, the plane with me and when we got to the airport, the puppets were not there and oh, gosh. my uh, interpreter cued to telephone the theatre, so we had to wait till she got up to the phone and the puppets were still there. So, and these were the days where things often went missing with Russian airlines. Oh, God. <laughs> Confident. So I waited and waited 
and then someone said they're calling your plane. So I had to go up without the puppets. But just as I went up the stairs, and I still have this memory, they came rushing in out of the rain with the cases, everybody dripping. (laughs) As I got onto the plane, a large Russian man said, your cases (laughs) gave me the, (laughs) the tickets for them. When I got to London... They didn't come off the plane. I was waiting and waiting oh my God. until everybody collected their suitcases. My personal suitcase was there, but uh, the puppets weren't. Eventually, I just had to go out of the airport without the puppets. And there was a car waiting, a much smaller car than c- could have taken the puppets. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a note, did I want to go and stay with the bustles or stay with Jim? And so I went up and stayed with Jim, because that seemed the obvious thing for a week. Uh, wow. So I had a wonderful week in London. The puppets did arrive. They had been there. But they still had the Qantas labels on them, so they went to Qantas, and they agreed to send them to the studio at no extra cost. So, in fact, it turned out very well. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I want to ask about your week with Jim or however long you stayed with Jim for. I mean... People revere Jim, and 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 everyone has a different experience and story about Jim. And can you tell us a bit about who the man of Jim was? Well, I made a mistake of the date. I think I said that Russian one was in seventy four. It was in seventy six. Okay, so I have to correct me because seventy four was when I did shows at uh, Bill Baird's Theatre in New York, and uh, Jim invited me uh, to have the weekend uh, with the family. Um, and so after work on Friday, uh, he drove me up to their place in Greenwich. So that's really where I got to know him better. He was a very pleasant, easygoing guy. He had it all together, as you might say. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. But he had extraordinary energy. And I've heard a story from one of the people that worked with him when they were working on Fraggle Rock. And one of the puppeteers said, Jim, we've been working hours and hours, we're all exhausted. And he just didn't hear that because he, <laughs> he was never exhausted. Mm. He didn't, didn't tire. So there was enormous energy and enormous talent, of course. Uh, I liked, liked him very much, felt it was a great friendship. I've got, got a wonderful letter there saying... I've been carrying around this letter for, from you for the last year, but now that it's a year's gone by, it seems time to answer. So how the hell are you? <laughs> 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 it was a, a great friend. I was really devastated when he, when he died. I was in um, Toronto doing shows when the news came. Margaret told me about, on the phone because I'd phoned here and she'd found out before I, I did. And uh, there was to be a memorial service on the Monday in New York and uh, it was very quickly organised. I'd been with Alla Lou Curtin in Seattle. She was visiting her son there. She's from New York and she was the Unima General Secretary and she had to fly back to talk at this uh, memorial service, Mm. uh, which is a very moving service. I've seen video of it. But I wanted to send some flowers and I went to a, a florist uh, at the, in the basement of the York Hotel and said, uh, I want these to go to the church on Monday. And she, the girl said, but it's a public holiday on Monday. And I said, it's not a public holiday in New York. And she said, 
They don't celebrate the Queen's birthday in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And talking about uh, Jim and the Muppets and and the incredible cast of talent that is the Muppet family, Um, in December last year we sadly lost a great puppetry legend called Carol Spinney, who was the puppeteer behind Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. And I know that you've met Carol, and I'd love if you could also share with us some of your memories with Carol. And I heard that you went to a party that he organised once that was quite something. Well, uh, I said I, I spent a weekend with uh, with Jim and the family. What happened was uh, that on the Saturday we drove up to uh, Carol's place, which is which was in Woodstock, uh, but not Woodstock of music fame, Woodstock in Connecticut, up near the border of Massachusetts. And on the way, we called at Rufus Rose, uh, Rufus Rose's house. Rufus was a quite a well-known puppeteer, and there's the Rufus Rose, Rufus and Margot Rose Theatre at the O'Neill Centre now. Gosh! And Rufus came up to the party with us, and uh, it was by a, a large pool, a pond where people were, were swimming, and it was a very pleasant afternoon. And I took a photo of Jim and Carol. And uh, when he died, I sent a copy of that photo to Nancy Starb and she said, you should send this to Cheryl. So I sent it to Cheryl Henson. And last Sunday week, I think, we uh, got up at five o'clock in the morning to watch the memorial service for Carol. Mm. It was, uh, I was told I was, asked not to publicise the the live stream of this. But to my amazement, Cheryl mentioned that very photo during the ceremony. It's a a photo of Jim with Carol, but it's a very relaxed photo. I caught up with Carol again later that that visit to the States because after New York I did shows in Kentucky and at the Australian Embassy in DC. And then... The last bit was a festival in um, New Orleans. And before my show, which was the last thing at the festival, Carol and a magician named Jay Marshall imitated the Sicilian puppets that we'd seen earlier in the week. And they'd dressed themselves in armour made from alfoil and (laughs) fighting in swords. And I was behind my screen watching the shadows and seeing them come very close to the screen and bumping the screen at one stage. And I thought, oh, here we go. Mm. But uh, it was very funny. Uh, Carol was uh, the MC for that festival and he had had a puppet called Pickle Puss. This is what Jim had seen early on at the Puppeteers of America Festival and apparently at that particular performance things went very wrong for Pickle Puss and Carol was not particularly happy and nevertheless Jim said, I'd like you to come along and work with us. And he found his niche with those two characters, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. He wasn't so hot with the other kind of... The other Muppets, apparently, but those two really became his. At this festival in New Orleans, he began with a cat puppet that appeared above the screen. It had animated features, eyes, and the audience seemed to be a bit restless. 
And Carol said, yeah, that's what I thought, and produced the original Pickle Puss, which is a much simpler puppet, but much better. <laughs> it's a, re- a great lesson that, that simplicity is often more successful in puppetry than the complicated figure. Interesting. Wow. Um, we're going to take a little break. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Richard Bradshaw. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. And we'll be back with Richard shortly. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one Orange Sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Richard Bradshaw. We've been talking about a whole legacy of puppet magic from the Cleverly Puppet Theatre to Henson and beyond. Let's continue the conversation. So, um, Richard, I wanted just to go back to your story with Carol Spinney at that fateful party. I I need people to hear this side of the story. I think it's so brilliant. Um, Can you tell us what happened after... Obviously, that was that moment, the wonderful photo. Uh, But tell us about how they let you go, how they saw you off. Night was falling and I'd had a, a glass or two of wine and I started to see seeing these little lights all around me and I thought perhaps I've had too much wine but they were lightning bugs which are quite wonderful. I've now seen flocks of them, I don't know if they're flocks, with these masses, of, they're fireflies. Fireflies, yes. yes the, when one landed on me I realised that I wasn't imagining things. But I was in the car... Uh, I think with there was uh, Jane and and young Heather who was about three years old, Brian and John, and outside the window were, were Jim Henson, Carol, and Frank Oz. Oof. Frank Oz was going to travel with us back to Connecticut. They said goodbye to each other as the light was fading, and they said it in the voices of Bert and Ernie and Big Bird. And I couldn't believe that this was really happening, that I was hearing this. Anyway, the trip back was rather eventful um, because as we drove away, a light came on in the car, which was a a Jaguar station wagon, and said, stop the engine. And we'd run out of water. The radiator was apparently leaking. So we went into a very silent sort of town. I think everybody was in bed, wondering where we might find water. And we came to a cemetery. And Jim, Brian and I went looking with a container for water in the cemetery. While we were doing that, a police car came along and wondered what... (laughs) we were doing and when we said what it was he said I'll get back in the car I'll take you to the station so we were in the back of this police car and that's when I found out you can't open the door of a police car from inside of course for obvious (laughs) reasons Uh, uh, and he wired through you know we've got we've got three four nine fives in the back or something and There's so, a code for you, puppeteer yes. in the back seat of a police car as a code. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and we picked up the water at the station and he drove us back and put it in the car. And we set off again and once again the light came up, stopped the engine. No. So 
we found a service station. This is after midnight now, uh, where they were able to work on it for about an hour. It was the first time I had clam chowder, and that was quite wonderful because we had to <laughs> fill in time waiting. Then in the early hours of the morning, <laughs> we got back to Greenwich, and when we went into the house, the basement was flooding and was still being filled by water from oh, a no. leaking pipe. And Jim had collected a number of imitation Muppet figures made out of plastic that people trying to sell because they had a, a lawyer full-time to try to stop this sort of thing. Ah. And he had this collection. They were all floating around in the basement. <laughs> Dead bodies. <laughs> and Jim, Jim and Frank had to get up at about five o'clock because they were flying to San Francisco to see the Muppets on ice or Sesame Street on ice, something like that. I was able to bind around the pipe with tape until there was so much tape around it that it leaked no more and so the water at least stopped coming into the basement. But that was quite eventful. Horrific evening yes. after such a lovely day. <laughs> Gosh. And they made their flight, obviously. I guess, yes. Okay. They, they'd gone by the time I woke up. <laughs> so we've just been uh, in the break having a look at uh, your letters from Jim, Jim Henson over the years. And you uh, mentioned that you, in 1972, went to the Unimar Congress in Charleville, Mezier, which is after Jim's visit, apparently where the headquarters of Unimar then um, remained to be. After meeting Henson, um, what did that mean for your career um, internationally and here in Australia? Well, just meeting him didn't meet, mean anything. I think uh, really it wasn't till I did the, the Muppet thing that, that it was really valuable for my career that, uh, because I don't know if you've seen the, the clip that Kermit introduces me <laughs> being from Australia. Yes. And so it was very nice publicity to have. We certainly used it for yes. a number of shows here. After... Um, we started the Rocks Theatre in Sydney. Jim visited Australia. I didn't know he was coming. Yes. I got a telephone call saying, uh, this is uh, Jim and I'm at the Hyatt. And, uh, visiting, I, I think it's probably to do with Fraggle Rock. I'm not sure. I think ah, they, yes. they were trying to uh, promote it. But he came along to the uh, building which was being gutted at the time and saw the film that Michael Crichton had made called Rubbish, which was had been made in that building. Um, and I remember walking along George Street because we walked all the way down to the, the rocks, thinking, here I am, walking alongside Jim Henson, nobody knows him. Goodness. Because <laughs> no-one did know what he looked like then. He was probably they got to see his image more because he did start appearing in interviews and yes. things after that. So that was the first time he was here, and then he came again in 1980. Four. Yes. And that's when you recorded the whole show. Becoming a, an artistic director of the Marionette Theatre of Australia, where this kind of theatre kind of struggles to exist now, it worked in the 80s and you actually took over from Peter Screamer, who was... Peter uh, Scriven. Squid Scriven, sorry, <laughs> who was the Tin Tookies. Tell me, tell me about him. Well, Peter Scriven's a very important figure in, in Australian puppetry and he had joined... There was a, Bill Nichols taught puppetry at Melbourne Teachers College and started a little puppet theatre in Melbourne and also the Australian Puppet Guild uh, in about 1944, I think, before the end of the war. And Peter Scriven had been a member of that guild. The interesting thing is Bill introduced puppetry as a subject for the intermediate certificate in uh, in Melbourne. Wow. And Peter sat for it and found... <laughs> 
failed, uh, Bill failed him because he didn't keep his practice book up to date or something. This is a great joke between them. <laughs> keep your logbooks, folks. Keep your logbooks but up to date. Bill is a very important figure. I, I should talk about him an, another time. But Peter was already interested in, in puppets then. And in 1953, with the uh, help of the Arts Council of New South Wales, he presented a show at the uh, Theatre Royal in Sydney, the old Theatre Royal. The following year, he did a second show, and those shows were taken on tour in between the um, uh, theatre seasons. That brought his name to public attention, Mm. but it wasn't until 1956 when he launched a very large show at the new Elizabethan Theatre in Newtown, The Tintookies. When he had started building this show, or had the first idea to do it, someone knocked on his door and it was Igor Hitchka, who was a Polish gentleman who had been in after the war in Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires, <laughs> where he worked with Padreca. Padreca's Italian company was a very large marionette company that did opera but also variety, travelled with its own orchestra and, and singers Goodness. as well as puppeteers. It was a big scale thing. Yes. And during the war, they didn't go back to Italy. They were based in Argentina. So here was this man, Igor, with... A great expertise, having worked with a large marionette company, arriving just at the right time. And so he was very influential influential in the type of control they used, the bridge, the whole structure. And the show was very successful at, uh, and toured in Australia. For many people in the country, it was their first theatrical experience to see these tin talkies. And Tin Tookies was quite a magic name. On 2GB, if you turn on the radio, they played the march from the Tin Tookies. So it was it was really big time. Yeah, my parents uh, actually mentioned that if you if you if you remember uh, Richard Bradshaw, tell him that we used to watch the Tin Tookies, and that's when we first got into puppetry. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it really has made a legacy. Yes, yeah. it, it was very big and. So Peter inherited a lot of money. His grandfather started the National Bank of Australia, so it was wow. So there was good good genes there. Yeah. Um, anyway, Peter then did other productions. The Tintookies, if I'm right, no, it was it was Little Fella Bindi uh, that toured a, a big tour of of uh, Southeast Asia, something over a dozen countries, I think, for six months. A huge tour. Yes. And there's still a couple of people alive that were on that tour. Bruce Rowland up in Newcastle was uh, was on it. Um, he was, I think, the youngest member or nearly the youngest. And so they had big impact there. There were posters in Cambodian script and Japanese and Korean. It's, it was uh, an extraordinary event. Uh, and I think the first of the really big tours that uh, the Australian government funded after that, the ballet went, I think. Then in 1964, if I've got the date right, the Marionette Theatre of Australia was formed as part of the Australian Elizabethan Trust, but with the support also of the Arts Council of New South Wales. And it got regular funding for these large shows from the government. Mm. And so that's really the beginning of significant government funding for puppetry in Australia, and that's 
thanks to Peter Scriven. Wow. And then they, they didn't have their own theatre base. They operated from the Elizabethan Trust building. But in 1969, I think, yes, my first year out on tour with the Puppet Shadow Show, there was a big fire in the Trust warehouse in uh, Botany and those puppets were burnt. The only ones that survived were the puppets for the Explorers, which was out on tour at the time. So this was a great setback for Peter. And he went off to live in Asia. He lived in various countries, uh, in Singapore, in India, in Sri Lanka, and lastly in the Philippines, gradually going through his money. So he ended up with very little uh, before he died. Peter came back to Australia in about 1973, I think, to be uh, the puppetry officer for the Theatre Board of the Australian Council for the Arts, as it was then, it's now the Australia Council. Yes. And that's where I first got to know him, although I had got his autograph in <laughs> 1954. Ah, so you were a fan. <laughs> yes, definitely. And... In fact, when I was in the States in 74, Peter helped me uh, get to perform in the uh, embassy in Washington. When uh, when I took over the Marionette Theatre, the new Tin Tookies was on tour in Asia, or just beginning to go on tour. It was not a particularly successful tour in terms of money because they had a huge amount of equipment, I think three tonnes. The sound equipment was was extraordinarily Crikey. Heavy. And they sometimes had to use more than one plane to go from one country to another. Um, and the show, I have to be honest, was not as good as the original Tin Tookies. The first half used the soundtrack of the original Tin Tookies mm. and then a completely different soundtrack for the second half and a different approach, which it didn't meld, it didn't quite gel with the first part. And I had hoped, in fact, it would have been a greater success for Peter. He endorsed uh, my uh, application to be uh, the artistic director of the marathon. He he was just an advisor then, a guest director in in 75, I think. And... uh, I had to come in, not do big shows because there wasn't the money to to uh, mount a huge show, and touring had become very expensive. You had to pay uh, living away allowances for all the actors. It became a big thing. So I started off with very basic shows, two shows, Ruse and Hands. Ruse was. A bit Tintucky-like in that we had songs and there was a story. It was about the Palmer Wallaby. Uh, It's a a funny story in a way. The Palmer Wallaby was was thought to be extinct in Australia and then they discovered there was some living on Carrow Island near north of Auckland Mm. and they'd been confused with the Dharma Wallaby, which looks a bit like the Palmer Wallaby. (laughs) Anyway, they started exporting... Palmer wallabies back to Australia to... Um, Repopulate them. Yes. yes. And um, there's a New Zealand politician who said this animal must never be allowed to become extinct again. And <laughs> anyway, they discovered after doing all this that the Palmer wallaby was happily living up at Barrington Tops. There was, oh, it wasn't, no. It was 
endangered but nowhere near extinct. <laughs> so, um, but it, so we did the story based roughly on that. It was a, a wallaby looking for a girlfriend going to New Zealand where there were palmer wallabies. <laughs> and then the other part of the program was called Hands, where it was just a series of short items which began sort of with naked hands and then hands in gloves and gradually the hands became puppets and until finally there was a very large figure which was three sets of hands working. Wow. And I had a tour. This tour had been arranged before I joined the Marinette Theatre. I had a tour of Japan as usual um, and came back and looked at this show and I thought we can't do this at the Opera House. And I said, I called the cast together and I said, no, look, we'll do Ruse and the second half I'll do my shadows. Uh, and they rebelled because they'd had a lot of input into this show, Hands. So I called in the general manager and various people for the trust and said, what's your run through? And they quite liked the show. So I thought, oh, well, we'll do it. Well, I have, still have the review there from Norman Kessel that I think in the Telegraph or one of the papers, Hands is the most original <laughs> sort of puppet job or something with me for a while. And he, he doesn't think much of Ruse, but <laughs> Hands was full of praise. And it took off. And that, that was a great lesson for me, um, that I'm not a perfect judge <laughs> of puppet shows. It's... Uh, it, it was an interesting experience altogether. Mm. To bring to have a community of puppeteers in Australia who are, you know, working and, and creating work, it, it's really hard to market it now because we don't get the same amount of support and funding that we used to. Mm. And, the, the you know, the age puppetry that you're talking about is just so fascinating and foreign to me because it just doesn't... I just don't... It's I find it so hard to find it now. Well, it's, it's coming it's, back. It's a bit sad that the, the Marinette Theatre... Ended, you know, didn't end with not getting funding from the Australian Council. That's what happened. I would say that if the Marinette Theatre goes, your funding is, this is the one company that's getting all this funding. We were getting a large amount. We were, um, and it was the major company. But um, So when it went, all that funding went. And I think the Theatre Board was quite happy to have more money to spend on other things. Mm. And, you know, we, puppetry is sort of slowly coming back, I think, in, in Australia. I think Netflix, The Dark Crystal, um, and a few of the, the latest sort of big blockbuster movies, Cooper and the T-String, Star Wars is bringing back a lot of traditional puppetry as opposed to animatronics or animation. And I'm really interested in the idea of um, what, you know, what what is happening in Sydney now is we've got Dead Puppet Society, not, not in Sydney, in Australia, and they are creating a couple of shows that have really been kind of blockbuster hits. Then you have War Horse, which happened in sort of 2012 or maybe a little bit earlier, and these sort of major shows have kind of reshaped people's thoughts on puppetry, even though puppetry has existed in their lives from a foundation level with, with Sesame Street, with whichever kind of early childhood access they had to puppetry. They it, it sort of leaves your, your conscious mind when you become an adult. And so now that these shows and also Avenue Q coming back um, is sort of reintroducing adults to puppetry, um, I'm hoping that this is now a new sort of wave or a new age of puppetry. But what do you think? Do you think that that's completely false and that puppetry has always existed and, and you know, you just oh, have to no, be able to, to, to find it? or Things change because, yeah. 
Well, the world changes, technology changes, the audience's expectations change. And when television first began, puppeteers thought, oh, this is going to be wonderful because puppets are small scale and will fit on the television. But in fact, marionettes on television don't work very well, usually. Mm. You, you, see, you see how they're constructed, you see the strings, unless people are very careful. <laughs> and it, it, marionettes worked very well in the 19th century when you couldn't see them very well, <laughs> the lighting was poor. So the audience imagined much more happening to the figure than actually saw. This is my theory, anyway. Yeah. Um, because those big shows stopped once the electric light started coming in. And you mentioned earlier about how television really did actually stuff puppetry up in a lot of ways. Yes, well, there was a a puppetry like the the Muppets, which was devised for uh, talking heads. (laughs) Yes. And that was brilliant, a brilliant solution to... uh, uh, keeping Puppet alive, what what they did was amazing. Do you think Henson and and the people at, uh, who founded Sesame Street kind of had that in mind as a as an active choice, as an active decision, as an active solution, and that puppetry needed to change in order to fit television? Before Jim went into puppetry, he was a filmmaker, and there's a there is a film. Uh, where he's painting an elephant or something that he made uh, that has nothing to do with puppets. And then he and Jane started using puppets uh, in uh, Virginia, I think, uh, um, commercially... um, I think for commercials, but maybe for short pieces. And then he, he moved into puppetry as a sole thing, but... That wasn't his initial approach, so he was a filmmaker. In the same way, I think that I would have come into puppetry being interested in the theatre of it, not just straight into puppetry. Yeah. Yes. And it it clearly has to change when you can uh, use computer graphics and do amazing things, so you can animate a figure without actually having the figure exist. Mm. That... uh, Sue did a workshop at Charleville with that sort of thing, I think. Sue Wallace. Mm. Um, I have to ask you, because you were a teacher, and it, I just find it really interesting that so many puppeteers and people who are interested in puppetry come from a teaching background. Uh, I wonder if you have a theory on why that might be. No, I don't think I have a theory. <laughs> Only in my case, it's, that was just a separate profession that I chose in order to make money. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there is an overlap in that there's an awful lot of mathematics that has gone into the making of the puppets or some mathematical thinking. Um, so it works that way. But I, I just think interesting people go into teaching. and you've been revered by legends um of the puppetry world um and ronnie burkett who i'd say is a huge name in puppetry today uh looks up to you and posted when he you came to see his show recently um that's strange because i look up to him i think well that's my question (laughs) You, you look up to him do you look up to contemporary puppeteers and and you know who do you look up to i mean obviously you might look up to peter screaming as well as 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 sort of uh, a founder of puppetry in Australia, but who are the people that you really respect and admire in the industry? 
I, I certainly look up to Philip Huber, who is a marionettist based in Tennis, Nashville, I think, uh, and quite brilliant work. Um, and if you, you've put me on the spot thinking, because there are people who, whose work has really impressed me. There's a couple of guys from Buenos Aires, uh, and I can't remember the, the name of the company at the moment, who did a wonderful Romeo and Juliet with love puppets. And although I didn't understand the text, it was quite clear that the audience around me was enjoying it very much. It was quite erotic in places because they <laughs> undressed and you just got the naked hands <laughs> with their heads on it. It was a very funny show. Um, I obviously tend to go for the humorous shows. And there, uh, Albrecht Rosa, uh, who, who was a marionettist uh, that I helped to get to Australia, he did a, uh, one show in each of the mainland capitals for the, the trust organisers. This was in 1975, yes, <laughs> when I was working on a, a puppet festival in Melbourne. And we got, it was the opening, in fact, the time of the opening of the new Tintookies. And uh, I had invited Albert Rosa just for people to see a different kind of marionette. Uh, Albert worked very slowly with the puppets. They were beautifully manipulated, wonderfully made. But he had a character, Gustav, that played the piano, and I cried with laughter each time I saw that. It's, wow. It was a wonderfully funny thing. Uh, as Gustav is playing the piano, he's on a stool, and the stool is slipping back from the piano and Albrecht, the marionettist working him, just gently with his foot pushes the stool back towards the piano and Gustav pushes the stool back to where it was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ingrid, who was Albrecht's assistant, uh, got a little bit touchy with uh, um, Gustav uh, when he's asked for the stool to be put in one place and she put it down, then he changed his mind, put it in another place. She put it and she slammed it down. And Gustav came to her and lifted one finger of his hand, this is a marionette, towards her. Wow. You know, you behave. Oh. <laughs> it was uh, the hands the, the fingers were all fixes. full of sand. That was how they were heavy. Wow. Uh, but if you ever get a chance to see video of his work, uh, it's it's on one of the Henson series, the uh, Albrecht Rose. Wow. Gustav is mild. And then there was Granny. And Granny would be sitting away knitting as our friend is here <laughs> knitting uh, and gossiping at the same time. And it would be local gossip. He would pick up stories when he arrived at the place. And when he was doing the show for um, the the trust here, Granny was saying, oh, the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, such a big organisation. <laughs> mm. The big people ride in the cart and the little people push. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've got a great memory. You really do. You have an amazing memory. You're so meticulous with your dates and you remember these details, which is such a fantastic thing to hear you recite sort of those details in the stories. Um, We are out of time for this episode, Richard, but we are going to come back for part two uh, in in the next episode. So if you are listening with us today, please make sure that you uh, check out part two of our episode. But for now, we are out of time. So Richard, I'm going to thank you for joining us today. And uh, thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe for more puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson. Check out part two and we'll be talking again soon. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at Productions, and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock. 